Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello guys and girls, the program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and a researcher. Hey Santosh, how's your February going? Oh, it's going pretty well. I'm a little tired. I am slowly climbing out of the winter gloom as the days finally get a little bit longer and I have more daylight. How's yours? Enjoying 60 degrees in February in Chicago. (laughs) Thank you, climate change, I guess. So. I thought this week we would go back and uh, continue on in our our series that we started this February, uh, which is, of course, who charted for Black History Month. Oh, we already did a Black History Month episode, didn't we? What are you trying to say, Santosh? We can't do more than one? We can move on. We can totally move on. (laughs) So (laughs) let's return to... Air celebration of Black History Month with who charted? Woo! Um, yeah, we. I, I guess we have uh, some more wonderful African American figures, by and large, in American history to cover. Uh, for those of you listening outside of the United States, and if you haven't gone back and listened to about a couple of episodes ago, we celebrate uh, African-American or Black history every February here in the United States. Those of you listening may feel like there are things I'm leaving out, either your favorite African-American physicians or some of their accomplishments. And if so, by all means, send them in because unsurprisingly, it can be really difficult to dig up some of the historical records on these folks. There uh, have definitely been some, well, for lack of a better term, whitewashing uh, as 
when we talked about Blaylock and Tausig and for a long time leaving out the contributions of Vivian Thomas um, and other times, uh, you know, we, we just have lost archives. Um, but likewise, Josh, on the, on the flip side of things, there have been a lot, a lot, a lot of contributions to medicine and science by African-American physicians and surgeons and nurses, and there's simply not enough time to cover them all. <laughs> so let's get into it. Uh, carrying on, the first one we're going to talk about this week is Daniel Hale Williams. Have you ever heard of him? I have not. I, I, I'm, I am learning a lot of new facts uh, during our uh, episodes this year, but I'm also very, very happy to say I'm learning a lot of new facts. Uh, yeah, tell, tell me about Dr. Daniel Haley Williams. Well, yeah. the first, if not the most important thing you need to do is look up a picture and just respect that mustache. That's a very serious oh. mustache. <laughs> that is a fantastic... I, I have to say... The facial hair of, uh, you know, kind of days gone by, especially in doctoring, uh, is way head and shoulders above anything that we have today. I believe that at one point he sported a rather spectacular beard as well, Josh. Yeah, he's, he's got the, the proper Teddy Roosevelt bushy mustache, but that is neither <laughs> here nor there. He was one of the very first physicians in history to perform open heart surgery. And we'll come back Ooh. to that in a moment. But okay. one of the other things that you may have heard his name for is he was a physician who founded Provident Hospital, the very first hospital to have an interracial staff. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll tell me more about this, but I've never visited Provident Hospital. I don't know where it is um, if it, or if it's still around, uh, but that's, that's amazing. So this wasn't a, like an all African-American hospital um, specialty, something like that. This was truly, you know, people of different races working together in one place. Well, kind of. Okay. Um, okay. So Provident Hospital was founded in 1891 by Dr. Williams, who had already built up a reputation by that point, after Emma Reynolds, a Chicago woman, was denied admission to the Cook County School of Nursing in Chicago simply because she was black. So oh, Williams... Oh, okay. So this is our hometown, huh, Josh? Mm-hmm. So Williams okay. gathered a bunch of financial support, primarily from Chicago's black community, as well as a couple philanth white philanthropists such as George Pullman and Philip Armour to open a 12-bed hospital on Chicago's South Side that would actively train black nurses. Oh, that is a small hospital. <laughs> I, okay, but so it was not just meant to be a place to care for people, but also as an educational facility. So it originally started more as an educational facility. Those 12 beds were for patients who could be trained as you're working on your nurses. And the support of the philanthropists mainly came from the fact that it required a healthy workforce to sustain their businesses. But a lot of their black employees would be denied medical assistance at most other facilities in the city. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, you know, you have a whole workforce, but hey, 12 beds, Southside, Cook County, <laughs> that's enough to take care of everyone. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm a little heartbroken to hear about this. I have a lot of Chicago pride as we both do, um, you know, given, given where we trained. Um, but I also know that the history of various types of racism, um, racisms against people of color and, and black Americans, as well as anti-Semitism has a uh, kind of a, a, a long and dark history in Chicago. So I do understand why a facility like this was important and integral. Now, this is still in the era when formalized medical training was still coming up, and a lot of the training was apprenticeships. So early on, Dr. Williams became an apprentice to surgeon Dr. Henry Palmer, who you may have heard of. And completed I definitely recognize the name. Yeah. And completed further training at the Chicago Medical College. Once he graduated, he opened up a private clinical practice where he developed or where he applied all the recent sterilization and cleaning procedures that he had learned about by Pasteur and Lister, who were contemporaries at the time. And Part of the reason he had to open up a private clinical practice, aside from being an entrepreneur, is most black physicians, most black physicians were still refused staff positions at hospitals. So he said, all right, then I'm going to found my own hospital and nurse training program, and he would hire anyone. So early on, it did actually have a fairly integrated staff. Uh, but okay. as time went on, you saw a little bit of trickling away as it became somewhere that more and more white physicians would just leave or not apply to because they could be employed by any hospital in the city, whereas the opportunities for black physicians were more limited. So even though it was aimed to be racially integrated, as time went on, it actually ended up being segregated itself. Oh, oh, I'm a little sad to hear about that. But given the history that you're talking about, I do understand how that process occurred. But here is one of the major things that brought Dr. Williams to my attention. In 1893, yeah. a man with a severe stab wound to his chest was brought to Provident Hospital, and I have linked you to the paper. Now, this is before we had ECMO or cabbage or really even cath labs. Uh, so Dr. Oh. Williams managed to successfully suture the damaged portion of the man's heart without blood transfusions or any modern surgical techniques that you could probably name, which means... Whoa. <laughs> so, in the Josh, you said no bypass either. So this this heart was beating as he was suturing. Yes, <laughs> Whoa. and also okay. uh, remember no blood transfusions so whatever he's he has to act fast because the blood is literally pumping out everywhere oh my gosh okay all right gotcha gotcha um props uh so he's he's looking at a you know kind of uh, and i'm guessing i, I don't know you know, if there was even any active, like today we have wall suction, right? So if there's blood pooling in an area and you need to see what you're doing so the blood doesn't get in the way, you can actually just put in a little suction catheter in the field and just zoom, you know, just open it. 
Um, yeah, l- let me just read off a little piece of his operative report because um, this scares the crap out of me. Um, a small punctured wound of the heart about one-tenth of an inch in length and one-half of an inch to the right of the right coronary artery between two of its lateral branches was seen. The wound in the pericardium, or the covering of the heart, was about one and, uh, and a quarter inches in length. There was no hemorrhage. The edges of the pericardium were held by long, smooth forceps. Uh, a continuous suture of fine cat gut was made. Uh, that's the suture that they used. Uh, and, and before yes, the pericardial it was, in wound fact, was closed, it was in fact cat the gut, gut from cats. That's not <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. not a euphemism. <laughs> it's literal cat gut for sutures. Yeah, and then um, the the temperature was a hundred degrees. He noted it was irrigated with normal salt solution. Cat gut was used in closing the intercostal and the subcartilaginous wounds. And then he used silkworm gut in the cartilage and the skin. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- this is this is scary, Josh. He was he he was live suturing a beating heart with blood pooling there without any of the amenities we think about now to help assist again, a surgeon. <laughs> and when you're trying to think of those amenities, home listeners, 1893 means this operation was done without X-rays, without antibiotics, without surgical prep work or really even a lot of surgical texts and without any of the modern things like cath labs, ECMOs or those. So this is about as frontier as it gets. His skills placed him and therefore Provident hospital at the forefront of the medical practice in Chicago. And this is when he was one of only three practicing black physicians in Chicago at the time. The patient, James Cornish, survived and was discharged 51 days after his remarkable surgery went on to live a long and productive life. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Now, later on, In 1894, only a year later, Dr. Williams moved to Washington, D.C. and was appointed the chief surgeon of Freedman's Hospital. Now, Freedman's Hospital began during the American Civil War at the start Mm -hmm. of the Freedman's Bureau, a social service system, and a lot of newly freed slaves were pouring into D.C. hoping their needs would be supplied. And because of these circumstances, the War Department of the federal government decided to establish a whole department to create an emergency facility to care for the sick and needy. Mm -hmm. Almost close to 50, 60 years later in 1967, Freedman's Hospital and School of Nursing was transformed into Howard University. Oh, wow. So one of the great what we call HBCUs, uh, historically black colleges and universities here in the United States. Now you may be saying to yourself, this is a rather skimpy uh, history of his accomplishments and you wouldn't be wrong. But as I said, it's really hard to track down documented records of some of these physicians and their accomplishments uh, simply because it wasn't considered worth documenting because they were minorities. Yes. And so a a lot of them, either their accomplishments were, you know, kind of uh, swept under the rug 
or in a few other cases that we talked about when, you know, please do go back a couple of episodes, listeners, if you haven't already. But when we were talking about Dr. McCune Williams, who was an emancipated enslaved person, there were times when he just plain had to give his work over to somebody else to publish who was not African-American just so the work would get published. So there have been many, many instances of this. Um, But yeah, this is wonderful. And uh, I'm so happy to learn about Dr. Williams uh, and all of his accomplishments, his contributions to medical training, to uh, caring for uh, emancipated enslaved people. Um, And then eventually, uh, you know, the the growth of this Freedmen's Bureau into one of the greatest uh, universities and and medical schools here in the United States. He also was quite active uh, politically, but we're not going to talk about that. We're focused more on the medicine. And one of our other physicians, uh, Vivian Thomas, wrote about him was that his greatest pride was that directly or indirectly, he had a hand in the making of most of the outstanding black surgeons of the current generation. Wow. Uh, Josh, when we get the chance, um, we should see if uh, we can go over to Northwestern uh, because it, it looks like that's when, when Dr. Williams graduated, it was not called Northwestern University Medical School, but looks like that was his alma mater the Chicago Medical College. Let's move on to our next physician. I feel like that's a pretty big opening. So the hearts. Yeah. Uh, and now that <laughs> we go from now, like hearts, hearts to minds, maybe. Yeah. So now we've got your heart. Now let's grab your mind with, <laughs> s- with Solomon Carter, the first mm. black American psychiatrist and a pioneer in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease who studied directly under Aloysius Alzheimer himself. <laughs> Alwa. Alwa. You you will what? No. <laughs> no, no. It's like a French name. It's A L O I S. Alwa. Ah, we. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Solomon Carter Fuller uh, got his start studying under Alwa Alzheimer himself. And mostly Mm -hmm. that was through performing autopsies and doing work that other physicians didn't want to perform. Um, As such, he made several medical discoveries first that contributed to our understanding of the pathology. He pursued postgraduate studies at the University of Munich in Germany, uh, which again shows that a lot of our well-known or accomplished black physicians had to study abroad in order to get the education that they then brought back to the U.S., which they were barred from in the States. He researched pathology and neuropathology. And while there, he was selected by Alwa Alzheimer to Mm -hmm. research at the Royal Psychiatric Hospital, where he became an expert in the diagnosis and treatment of syphilis, which is why he was looking at the brain to begin with. 
Oh, yes, yes. So a lot of the time, I know folks out there think of syphilis as, uh, you know, as an STI, uh, rashes in the genitalia and, and, you know, lymphadenitis and rashes and that kind of a thing. But if left long enough, uh, syphilis can affect the rest of the body, including the brain and the heart, um, and cause basically long-term and permanent brain damage. So yeah, syphilis is a big player in the uh, neuropathology world. In 1907, when he had returned from Munich, he began to publish a case series describing interesting features on the autopsy of patients diagnosed with conditions such as dementia paralytica, dementia senilis, and chronic alcoholism. And in these reports, he noted abnormal appearances of the neurons and the presence of fibers in the cases of dementia senilis and dementia paralytica, while also recognizing the influence of his mentor Alzheimer and the input in dementia research to date. So in 1912, he published in two parts the very first comprehensive review of Alzheimer's disease at the time. So he reviewed 11 known cases and translated it from German to English, meaning this is when the English-speaking world first started getting access to this kind of knowledge. He also described the ninth ever recorded case of the disease. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, so he he was very early on. So, uh, okay, just to put everything kind of into context, um, the the psychiatric clinic, uh, you know, in Munich, Germany, um, where, you know, the, this brain research was being done by Dr. Alzheimer was just opening up like in 1903. And the the speech that Dr. Alzheimer gave um, to the Congress of Psychiatrists of Southern Germany that introduced the this disease, not yet named for him at that time, was just 1906. So, uh, you know, Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller was very, very close on the heels of these discoveries. And um, it, it seems like we should be crediting him a lot more with the understanding of this uh, of this terrible dementia. Well, he's the one who, like I said, Uh, was translating that work from German to English. And the case that he saw, the ninth recorded case ever, was a 56-year-old man who had a two-year history of memory impairment, receptive Mm -hmm. dysphagia, and apraxia. Now, what are the... In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
trend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Those for our our home listeners, what are dysphagia and apraxia? So this is going to be difficulty in um, talking. Um, so we talk about aphasia when you lose uh, a linguistic avil- ability altogether. Dysphasia is going to be where your understanding of language is thrown off, uh, and you you have difficulty, um, you know, understanding speech. Uh, words, sentences, that kind of a thing. And Josh, give me the other the other term that you uh, said. And apraxia. Apraxia. So apraxia is uh, the term describing difficulty using your mouth and tongue in a coordinated manner. And so we do talk about this in terms of speech, but it could also be for, uh, you know, uh, swallowing, chewing, all these other motions that you need. So when he was performing an autopsy on this gentleman who had difficulty understanding language and performing some fine motor movements, he found regional atrophy of the cerebrum, with extensive plaques and what he called Alzheimer degeneration with a mass of thick, darkly staining snarls and whirls of fibers, which are what we now today call neurofibrillary tangles. Ooh, try saying that three times fast. (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah. So, and nowadays we know that it's associated with a uh, kind of... uh, a destructive protein called tau protein. So we call them as tau tangles. And, uh, you know, what he didn't describe yet in, in his day and age in terms of the plaques uh, are kind of the pathologic hallmark of Alzheimer's, um, which are from uh, A beta amyloid. Um, which is a kind of a misfolded protein. We used to think that this was the underlying cause of Alzheimer's, but we're moving away from that right now. But that's amazing. So he put these slices of brain under a microscope and really described for the very first time the actual pathology of what the brain looks like when a person is undergoing this degenerative dementia. In 1919, at 47 years old, he dedicated his time to educating people at Boston University, where he became an associate professor of neuropathology, and two years later, an associate professor of neurology. Uh, He was the only African-American on the faculty at the time. Mm Mm-hmm which means, of course, paid less than his fellow professors and not formally acknowledged on the university's payroll in what is uh, a rather disturbing, if not surprising, trend in all of the physicians we've spoken about during this series. And from 1928 to 1933, just like poor... Thomas and Blaylock, he acted as chair of the Department of Neurology, but wasn't actually given the title. 
he was oh my then. god are you <laughs> oh it, so it gets worse he given all the responsibility and none of the credit or the pay uh oh. in fact his retirement in 1933 came after a junior assistant professor was promoted to full professorship and appointed the official department chair so he pretty much uh got voluntold to retire Oh, that's awful. Okay. No. So he contributed all this amazing stuff, which has laid the foundational bedrock for one of the most uh, common and serious medical disorders in elderly people today. <laughs> and his thanks was to be told to go home. His thanks was, hey, you know, this job you've been doing for a bunch of years, but we didn't give you the credit for well now we're naming someone else to that position so thank you for your service good day uh oh, but dear. for okay. all that you cannot take away that he was one of the first people to describe and study directly with alzheimer and mm -hmm. had it not been for him our understanding of the disease may have been set back by a number of years yeah, especially because, and, and this really does matter, lingua franca, or the commonly accepted language of a profession or a field, really, really does matter. matter. Even to this day, we lose a lot of knowledge because, you know, papers are very meaningful and impactful, but they're not published in English. So for this gentleman, who at least looks like new two languages for him to take the initiative to out of the goodness of his heart and probably drive and motivation um take these the the papers from alzheimer and his findings and everything else and translate them and bring them over to english as english was becoming um the more common parlance of medicine and science in the 20th century um that probably helped disseminate this information so, so much more quicker uh, than if if these findings and these papers had only been published in German. So we owe this, this man everything. Oh my gosh. Now, the third, maybe final one, I think we can squeeze in a fourth, but the third one I want to talk about is Louis T. Wright, or Louis T. Wright. So okay. let's, let's start again with some of his education. Mm -hmm. um, again, born to an enslaved uh, man as a parent, managed to work his way up to graduate fourth in his class at Harvard Medical School. Wow. Which in and of itself was no easy feat. He was an extremely educated individual, but Wright was deemed unfit by, and this is a name that comes straight out of what feels like should be a classic 80s Dean villain from those sure. colleges. <laughs> yeah. Chan he was deemed unfit by Channing Frothingham III. No. <laughs> Please tell me who made that name up. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> that I, was one. I of... am seeing a Victorian like asshole with you know a monocle and a top hat 
and saying things like hub, 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 hub. <laughs> you're not entirely wrong as uh, Channing <laughs> Frothingham one of the medical school's yeah. interviewers okay was initially unwilling or reluctant to admit Wright to Harvard Medical School due to his attendance of an undergraduate institution that was desegregated. Oh, okay. So he he earned his degree and then Frothingham went back and looked at the fact that, uh, you know, Dr. Wright at this point had finished his undergraduate degree at Clark Atlanta University. And he said, Oh, I, I don't acknowledge your undergraduate degree from Clark Atlanta. So therefore your medical degree is void. Well, so you can't get into medical school. However, after subjecting him to numerous tests, Frothingham ultimately ruled that he had adequate chemistry for admission to this school, which is <laughs> just what the hell does that mean? Frothingham? <laughs> well, it's it's racism. It's it's dressed yeah, up yeah. racism, but it is sure. a very weird way of saying it. Um, okay. He ultimately completed his postgraduate work and residency at Howard University. He then joined the army and served in France as a physician and captain in World War One. Wow. Okay. Where he developed. Keyword there developed the intradermal injection vaccination technique. Whoa. Pretty important. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So uh, going all the way back to, you know, the revolutionary war, right. Where we were inoculating soldiers against smallpox. uh, So, you know, that they didn't, you know, have epidemics going through barracks and things like this. Josh, the the previous methods of inoculation um, were really, really difficult. I, I think this still exists today as a, you know, if you don't have anything else available for variolation, is you actually just take the the, you know, the pathogen or your vaccine or whatever it is, and you actually scratch it into the skin it's it's really really awful um and to substitute that for a clean you know intradermal technique um that's absolutely you know amazing and intradermal vaccination is um still used to you know to this day um for bcg bacille calmet guerin which is a vaccination against tuberculosis um, and, and very, very relevant. So during World War I, he began implementing the intradermal injection vaccination technique. He also suffered exposure to poison gas that led to a purple heart. Not only the intradermal injection technique, but also suffered exposure to poison gas that led to both a purple heart and a lifelong respiratory illness. Oh, dear. When he came back, he moved to New York where he became the very first African-American appointed to the surgical staff at Harlem Hospital. Harlem Hospital was all white prior to him. Oh, oh, okay. So, you know, you and I think of Harlem as historically a, a, you know, a black neighborhood, a borough in New York, but that was not the case at this time, huh? No. Uh, So in his 1925 In a 1925 issue of JAMA, which was 
one of the few historical records I was able to track down, he responds to a little bit of an attack on his method. Um, and this, these are his words directly. In your answer to the question as to the relative merits of the intradermal method of vaccination and its advantages over the old scratch method, which, as we talked about, was variolation. The scratch method mm -hmm. or the incision method is you placed a small cut in the soldier's skin, and then you wiped pus from an infected uh, <laughs> person into yeah. and smeared that pus into the skin, into and, the... That would, <laughs> and that would be how you would inoculate people. Gross. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, hey, maybe we don't do that. Let's not uh, inject with pus. So, <laughs> so in response to the your question as to the relative merits and its advantages over the scratch method, you fail to mention one of the chief advantages of the intradermal method is that it gives a much higher percentage of takes than vaccination by the so-called incision. This point... Yes. This point, he goes on to say, I proved rather conclusively as a result of comparative study of the intradermal and incision methods at the time I devised my original method of intradermal vaccination against smallpox. And then he goes on to uh, be a little bit more scientific about it. But another guy who used statistics as a smackdown, which I, I love, I absolutely <laughs> adore. This is absolutely beautiful. That was... Yeah, uh, very professional uh, and, and you know, perfect kind of a takedown. No insults, you know, no stooping to, you know, down to any levels, just like mic drop. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, for those of you who don't know, the skin is an amazing immune interface to help us recognize self from other, um, pathogen from non-pathogen. and it, you know, if you slice open the skin like that or scratch it, you're going to evoke a much harsher inflammatory response. Um, there's going to be a good number of patients where, you know, yes, it's pus or, or whatever it is you're inoculating at that site, where you just have an overwhelming inflammatory response and you don't have a immune memory that forms and then circulates throughout your entire body. But if you gently place uh, whatever you need to, in, in this case, the, the 0 0.1 milliliters or, or cubic centimeters of the, the virus, um, that was in dilution, um, then what happens is you don't have, you know, this horrible healing and inflammatory response. You actually have immune recognition taking care, you know, taking place right there under the skin. And the take that he was talking about is that you instill long-term close to permanent immunity from this technique. So yeah, not just less messy, but much, much more effective. One other person who is worth mentioning, as long as we're bringing up Louis T. Wright, is mm -hmm. Jane C. Wright, his daughter. Oh, oh, wonderful. Oncologist, one of the pioneers <laughs> of chemotherapy. And Ooh. she... Although we're not going to go into her full story, as a lot of it links with his, and we're running out of time, but she is credited with developing the technique of using human tissue culture rather than lab mice 
to test the effects of drugs or potential drugs on cancer cells. Yay! <laughs> so actually, you know, thinking about the fact that, hey, you know, humans are going to human, you know, humans are not going to mouse. So although using an animal model in order to investigate uh, disease patterns and drug responses is, is really helpful. Um, yeah, in this case, you just say, hey, can I borrow some of your tissue over there and then grow it in a Petri dish and actually just inoculate, you know, those cells with this drug to see how, you know, how it fights the cancer or if it's toxic or anything else? Um, really, really brilliant idea. And if we take it for granted today. And if you follow Jane C. Wright's work of developing the technique of human tissue cultures to test cancer cells, you don't have to go very far before you reach the immortal cells of Henrietta Lacks. Wow. Gila cells. Yes. Um, which has its own, you know, dark history for all the good that it has done, um, you know, in the field of cancer. Yes. So that's it for Who Charted, but I think we've introduced you to six pretty impressive physicians over the last couple episodes who I encourage you to find out more about. They are among the top, but certainly not the only ones who have brought a lot to the world of medicine. Um, I, I absolutely love going over these historical figures not just to shine a light on important figures in our field, uh, but to see everything that they overcame in order to share their knowledge with the world um, and to better humankind. Um, it, it just makes me really, really happy to see what people, uh, you know, wanted to do despite the adversity that they faced. Um, and yes, we should absolutely be honoring these folks alongside, you know, other figures that are much more prominent and well-known in the medical field, um, such as, you know, Dr. Alzheimer, you know, immediately we should be saying Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller, just like that. Uh, my favorite is still going to be James McCune Smith, though. So if you missed our first two charted episode, go back and, and check him out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we do recognize that, you know, our uh, review over here is largely United States centric and pretty much almost all. But that is because we did want to honor uh, the African American uh, folks in, in medical history. But we would love to hear from you uh, all over the world. Um, I believe, Josh, we have quite a, an amazing contingent of travel medicine listeners in Australia. Uh, we'd love to hear like of, a shockingly uh, you know, large number and we love yeah. you all i'm just we surprised do. We, really... <laughs> we gotta come down and see you folks sometime um and, and come to say thanks uh but we'd love to hear from your native countries your native lands um people who are from um you know oppressed backgrounds um whether that's from racism sexism anything else uh, but people who are kind of in the dark and who deserve to be much more celebrated than they are uh, in the field of medicine and science. Um, we, we always want to shine a light on those folks. So if you have folks of 
any background who you would like us to further investigate or you want to tell us about and think would make good candidates for a section on who charted, then (laughs) by all means, send them to us. We are on all the social medias from Facebook to X to TikTok to whatever comes next. I might even have my Blue Sky account soon. Uh, Oh, I think I got invited to that one too. Okay, cool. And that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Sign up for our mailing list if you want to find out about live appearances and other projects we may have. You can do that at travelmedicinepodcast.com. We'll even give you something free and fun for it. Uh, This Mm -hmm. show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. And until next time, as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, a spin in your globe. Find some science or medical person that you think is worth studying and where they came from. And when you've done all of those things... Hey, happy travels. Hi, everybody. Oh, God. Oh, Josh, it's Alois. It was Alois Alzheimer. Josh. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.